This podcast is produced by VAG, an Amsterdam organization exploring the overlap between art, technology, and community in order to create positive social change and make the way that we live more open, fair, and inclusive. Welcome back to Seed Memory, a podcast where we explore the overlap between heritage and the natural world. In our first episode, we looked at the work of Vergès Aubin in Paris, who've been working on making the streets of Paris greener and more fertile by turning them into urban orchards through a process of collective gardening. In doing so, we found that Vergès Aubin re-examined the built heritage already existing in the French capital, the industrial railway circling the city, the trees running along the side of the streets, and used it as a platform on which to create a new form of heritage, an intangible one and the sharing of skills and the process of growing and eating together. The Vergès Aubin example then shows us one of the more curious parts of any discussion of heritage, which is that heritage is not static. Heritage changes and means different things for different people at different times. And of course, this relates to the fact that people's identities, which heritage is so crucially linked to, are not static either. They're multi-layered and made up of different things, according to people, place and time. Before we go any further, it's worth taking the time to explore these ideas a little more, because it will be important to us as we go forward. Heritage to me is complicated, intensely political as well as personal. I have seen it wreak havoc and tear society apart, but it is also something I turn to often for warmth and familiarity. This more personal meaning of heritage I don't explore much, so I think this is a good opportunity to talk about it. From the stories of gods and goddesses my grandfather tells me, or the food made on festivals, or even that sari that has been passed down in the family for generations and one day I'll get to wear it too. I feel a sense of comfort knowing that these things have been the same for probably hundreds of years, but also very unique in the way they are expressed right now, as if their existence was crafted for the very moment we're in. I will probably tell the same stories quite differently, make many tweaks to the family recipes and definitely not wear the sari the same way my grandmother did. But that sense of continuity and stability that these entities represent to me is something I cherish a lot. These are the words of my friend Kavya Venkatraman, talking about what heritage means to her, alongside some sounds that she chose that help evoke the sense of home that a discussion of heritage reminds her of. Now, obviously, Kavya's examples are different from what mine would be, and mine are different from what yours would be, and so on. But an important part of the discussion of heritage is shown in the way that she speaks of a sense of familiarity, continuity, and recognition across generations while also being adapted and contextualized for the present moment. This tension between evolution and life just being the same as it ever was is really key in heritage, and we find that when we take this into account, our definition of what heritage is becomes wider and wider, far beyond the towering monuments and ancient relics. So pretty much anything can be heritage if a large enough group attaches value to it in the present and decides it's worth keeping for the future. That's the voice of Tamara van Kessel, the programme coordinator of the Heritage and Memory course at the University of Amsterdam. Speaking to Tamara, it became clear just how transient this idea of heritage can become. Well, 
Generally, when people hear the word heritage, they understandably think of monuments, historic buildings, archaeological sites, and collections of historic objects or works of arts that are kept in museums. This is the kind of heritage that we associate with experts who in the past two centuries have often been the ones to define and select what was to be preserved as heritage. But societies are continuously evolving and their way of looking at the past evolves with them. Depending on how we look back on the past, we decide what we think is worth still keeping with us today and passing on to next generations. This has to do with our experience of time and the speed with which our way of life and surroundings are changing as well as with the processes of democratization that have meant that experts are gradually playing less of a role deciding what is heritage and more of a say is given to communities themselves, to the larger public. Increasingly, communities themselves, rather than experts, decide what can be considered heritage, which is creating an ever broader notion of heritage. I would now sort of go into explaining how this process of heritage making has become more participatory, but the result is that more and more types of things are being considered heritage to be preserved for the future, be it designer sneakers or you know, urban graffiti or personal souvenirs of migration history. Globalization and international flows of ideas have also led to a different understanding of heritage. In the heritage field, there is now more widespread appreciation of so-called intangible heritage, histories, traditions, rituals, beliefs, and systems of knowledge that have been transmitted not in writing, but in orally and through practice. Literature and films too can be regarded as types of heritage, but also language, music, all kinds of performing arts, culinary traditions, technological artifacts, and, and much more. Heritage is, in that sense, a social process and a discursive practice. So, heritage is complex. It's fluid and dynamic, simultaneously broad and specific, collective and individual and relates to a seemingly ever-increasing number of things all at the same time. But it's fair to say that heritage is on some fundamental level about legacies, what we choose to keep, to pass on to the next generation, and why. But what happens if what we choose to keep brings with it something that we don't want? Something mentioned elsewhere by Tamara was the industrial heritage of places like the north of England, for example, and the Parisian counterpart that was also of interest to Vergès Aubin. Similarly, here in Amsterdam, the banks of the area known as Bike Sloterham in the city's northern quarter have a long history of being an area of industrial activity, full of shipyards and trade. And in this case, one of the most significant legacies we can speak of isn't just this way of life, but the dark underbelly of it the pollution of the natural ecosystem of the area from all these decades upon decades of industry. What do we do if interacting with the industrial heritage of an industrial site means having to deal with the toxic legacy of pollution? For many, that might simply not be possible, but occasionally, in the spirit of technological ingenuity that has driven industrial growth for so long, these negative environmental impacts might be the catalyst for innovation, for both ecological recovery and community building. Decauville, located in Bikeslotterham, is one such example. My name is Tycho Hellinga. I'm the chairman of the board of Decauville uh, for two years now. And before that, I worked here for four and a half years as the program manager. And Decauville is a, it's a sustainability project. We're an urban incubator or broodplaats, as we say in Dutch. There's offices here and, and workspaces for creatives and artists. 
there's a very cool cafe uh, on the site with a very sustainable and uh, innovative menu. Um, there are several sustainability technologies integrated into the entire project. Um, some low-tech stuff, some very high-tech stuff. But before we get onto the technical stuff, let's quickly just go through the process that led to Decoville being here today. Decoville is the product of the municipality of Amsterdam, placing a 100-year-old shipyard of Amsterdam's bike Sloterham area up for lease for 10 years at the very reasonable cost of, uh, well, zero euros to whichever organization or developer could present the best case for the use of the land. The catch, however, is that the soil and the groundwater of the area is so heavily polluted by the site's industrial past that it's impossible to install plumbing for water and lay the groundwork for electricity, which presents a pretty much insurmountable snag for developers who might want to build the area into a block of flats, for example. For the architects behind Decoville's conception, these challenges meant getting creative, techie and collaborative. A group of architects, which were also involved with uh, Project Schoonschip, which is further down the canal, they came up with a plan to put old, unused houseboats on the land. And in the Netherlands, uh, we have a lot of water. People are living on the water. There's lots of houseboats where people live in. There's more boats than places to put them. They discard the old boat and uh, have a new boat built. So it's very easy and cheap to uh, get boats. Um, and most of them have to be destroyed because there's no place to put them. So they got these boats for basically free, put them on the land, turned them into uh, offices and workspaces for creatives and artists. They contacted a sustainability company called Metabolic. And they came up with uh, some very innovative ideas to solve the soil pollution problem, or at least the fact that, that we couldn't build, which was to build um, design Hellophyte filters, which are basically plant filters for the kitchenettes. So wastewater from the kitchenettes in the in the workspaces goes out uh, out of the boat with a pipe um, directly into the soil through several layers of um, of stones and pebbles and, and sand, and is being filtered like that. The system of plant filtering is known as phytoremediation, when roots, fungi, and bacteria come together to fight off or clean up pollutants. And implementing this process set the stage to showcase Decoville's wider vision, which includes two main aspects. The first is the fuller implication of this ethos of using technology to affect positive environmental change, with an awareness, perhaps a slightly humbling one, that the answers to these questions can't come only from us, but also can be found in nature itself. There's basically two big ideas. Uh, one is very high-tech. For example, the aquaponics greenhouse is fitted out with all these sensors that monitor the pH levels and uh, whatnot. Uh, and then there's very low-tech stuff, like the nature-based solutions. And I think what, what we try to show here is that there's a, a big push for cities to integrate technology into their cities to make cities smarter, to put sensors uh, and uh, blockchain and digitized automated software everywhere, uh, integrate that in the hardware of the city. And that's all well and good, but uh, cities also need more nature-based solutions and um, we have to look more towards nature because nature has been developing these technologies for millions of years, evolving the best way to break down pollutants and to create circular nutrient cycles. So integrating more of that natural wisdom, which is already present everywhere into our design, uh, that's also one of the things we try to advocate for. The second key aspect of the Decoval project is its place as a facilitator of local community. 
A perfect example of this is its response to the coronavirus being one where the organization helps distribute food grown locally to those living in the area. Evidently, Decovil isn't just about the physical things, the space, the technological solutions, and of course that polluted soil. It's also about the people in the area, and the connection that they have to where they are. The kind of thing that we heard about earlier on in the episode from Tamara. Yeah, if you just have the, the houseboats on the land and, and they're equipped with the technologies that I described before, but if you don't tell stories about that, then it's just going to be houseboats with compost toilets inside, but nobody knows what's the story behind it. So the Keuvel was designed uh, to be an association. So if you are a renter here, um, then you're immediately also owner of the space. Um, because we co-own the space together. So it's a very active, strong community. A lot of people working together on uh, on projects. Uh, there's lots of uh, community projects that we work on. There's volunteer days, gardening days. There's lots of events, um, which are sometimes created with partners from outside the Keuvel, uh, but which then uh, members of the Keuvel can plug into or, or contribute to or um, use the Keuvel as a, as a sort of platform uh, to put their own uh, work on top of. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of dynamic within the community and cooperation on the physical space as well as on the more the cultural uh, side. You're listening to Seed Memory. More in a moment. By keeping the Decovil project in the community and ensuring that the benefits it brings remain local in both the financial and cultural sense, they managed to combine an engagement with local industrial heritage with a sustainability project using the negative aspect of the area's shipping history as a catalyst for reinvention. So, to recall the wording of Tamara Van Kessel earlier in the episode, what they choose to keep from the past is the capacity to facilitate a sense of local belonging persisting in the present, while still doing something about the environmental legacy that needs addressing. Tecovil thus serves as a case study of the many aspects that need to be taken into account in considering what we choose to keep from our collective industrialised histories, what things we allow to be part of our stories. Because the story of industrial heritage is, of course, not only about these toxic legacies, but the people who have come to form an identity coalescing around these spaces of work and belonging. And these are questions of class and social status, and so are, of course, central to the way that we should think about heritage, so important as these things are to people's identities. But sadly, these are often overlooked in how industrial heritage sites are managed, something Tycho even touched upon elsewhere as a challenge for Decovil. To puzzle out some of the issues associated with industrial heritage, I spoke with someone who has made it his business to look into this thorny subject. My name is Stephen High. I'm a professor of history at Concordia University, uh, where I'm based at the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. Stephen High's work looks at the role that industrial heritage has to play in our modern lives. Often, the communities associated with industrial sites have historically been undervalued politically, or rather valued when there has been an economic imperative to value them, and then abandoned when that economic imperative disappears. It's not dissimilar to the way that people doing so-called low-skilled jobs 
are now being considered key workers in the functioning of our society now that it is shown to grind to a halt without them due to coronavirus. The carers, delivery drivers, supermarket staff, etc. of today are reflected in the industrial workers that have historically driven the growth of cities. Industrial heritage, at least in theory, seeks to preserve the value of these communities, but this, as we know, is a complex issue. The industrial era, you know, created almost an industrial sort of sensibility. You know, it, it, it's, not, it's more than a paycheck, that it, it, it permeates our lives. You know, I'm, I'm living right now in a, a neighborhood called Point St. Charles here in Montreal, and which was a, a heavily industrialized area, the birthplace of industry in Canada. Um, and sort of class formation didn't begin on the factory floor. It began, began in childhood, right? People grew up, you know, in this industrial sort of, uh, with this industrial sensibility and close proximity to those factories and this web of interconnection. And so when, when the factories closed, you have a social crisis that, that is deep and profound and doesn't end overnight. It, it persists for decades and, and there's a hole in these places and uh, and emptying out like once the factories close then the taverns close and the restaurants close and the stores close and the banks close right and so you have this this deinvestment of, of uh, within these communities that is is huge and so when we talk about industrial heritage to me we have to talk beyond we have to go beyond bricks and mortar we have to think about like where does this heritage reside you know does it reside in in in, in the aesthetics or, or does it reside in in these communities and these people so if industry persists in people's lives as a kind of ongoing sensibility rather than actually being on the factory floor then the way that former sites of industry are managed has to take this into account and again if Industrial heritage sites don't follow the example of places like Decauville and use the legacy of industry as a catalyst for benefiting the local community. The argument that what's happening is a preservation of the importance of local heritage and identity is actually weakened. It's all, it's all, it's all tied in, right? We need to have these hard conversations, right? We need to go beyond the, the idea that, yes, industrial heritage is, is um, good and right, uh, that we need to think about like what you know, what kind of industrial heritage and what is its place, right, within the here and the now? And how do we connect, you know, the past and the present, right? That we, we can't, we can no longer sort of suppress the present, right? We need to think about these relationships if we're going to be, uh, to have a different role, right, within, within the communities that, that these sites are located in. Like Stephen says, these are not simple conversations. Sometimes projects can be well-meaning and positive, such as community sustainability initiatives or investments, and yet at the same time miss the priority for, to use one of Stephen's examples, social housing for people in the community. Now one possible way we could move past this deadlock is to shift the focus again from the physical, tangible side of heritage to the intangible. What if we stuck with this idea that we don't think of heritage in terms of what can be seen and touched, but in terms of what we feel? I do a lot of oral history and with oral history, you know, every word that's spoken is wrapped in emotion. And we do, I do a lot of walking interviews too, where, where the built environment or the natural environments sort of intervene into the conversations and people are talking about even like how they're remembering through smells or through sounds or through the, 
silencing of certain environments, right? Things used to sound a certain way and don't don't sound that way anymore. But no, emotions are huge. Like history is personal and history inhabits each of us. If you try to suppress the emotion, I think, you know, that's an act of distanciation, right? You're distancing ourselves from what that history means to people. And so I, I think that if you're not thinking seriously about how do you interpret emotions in an industrial heritage site, you know, you are, that's an act of sanitization. The question is, how do you bring that emotion in, in a way that's authentic and, and I guess, effective? And I think oral history is, of course, you know, one way to do that. But I do think that, that you, you know, these industrial sites can be also community centers, right? They, they can be part of the, of the living sort of community that's still there. It hasn't you know, usually vanished entirely. And once we start to do this, once we begin to think of heritage primarily in emotional terms, we can start to imagine ways that heritage can become more inclusive and more representative, and crucially, more ecological too. And that's something that we'll explore in our next episode. This has been Seed Memory, with myself, Harry Reddick. Huge thanks to Kavya Venkatraman, Tamara Van Kessel, Tycho Hellingha, and Stephen High for being part of this episode. As well as Anna, Nana, Dick, Pam, Che, Richard, and all of the other Vach folk who helped the creation of this podcast. Additional thank yous go to the Sound and Vision Institute in Hilversum, who provided some excellent field recordings for this episode, as well as Anton Pearson and Lewis Shields, who provided the music that we heard throughout.